very good morning to all who are joining us today. Uh, this webinar is organized by the International Federation of Journalists, IFJ Asia Pacific, in collaboration with the National Union of Journalists, Malaysia, NUJM. Hello, and I'm Norman Goh, journalist and producer of weekly podcast, Bijarmi Guni, covering current affairs, politics, and socioeconomic stories. Hundreds of editors, journalists, and media staff were laid off and ran unemployed as a result of challenges faced by the media industry to stay afloat. So the COVID-19 pandemic came as a double whammy, forcing several media companies to shut down and downsize to keep themselves afloat. In this webinar forum, we will be speaking to key experts to understand how existing laws and regulations impact media personnel's news gathering activities and social media posts during the pandemic. I think we've also seen no of our journalists getting called for investigation, uh, some forms of intimidation, um, even some challenges in reporting in the midst of COVID-19. So to start our conversation today, I would like to invite Norila Daud. Uh, she was the she is the Senior Vice President of Asian Journalists Association, AJA, and former NUJM President. To say a few words, over to you, Norila. Very good morning to everybody here. Uh, as what uh, Norman said that I was formerly the uh, NUJM President for uh, 12 years. And uh, during my time, uh, the union was a very effective uh, body in protecting the rights and the rights goal of uh, journalists uh, because uh, all the newspaper companies, uh, the journalists working with the newspaper companies are relatively uh, members of the National Union of Journalists. So we were at that time about 1,200 members. But as time goes by and the political landscape changes in the country, uh, the media industry and also the uh, internet revolution coming in the online journalism has uh, made the newspaper industry uh, smaller and smaller and just like facing out from the uh, media media uh, industry. So uh, as I could say, the uh, journalist uh, landscape or journalism landscape is very much uh, different compared to uh, 10 years and today. So as you see now, uh, the topic is the legal and the professional rights of uh, employment rights of journalists. Uh, as you can see that many of the newspaper uh, company has uh, exercised uh, layoff, retrenchment, and uh, VSS, voluntary separation scheme, and also the M uh, mutual separation scheme. Uh, that uh, all uh, the goal is to uh, downsize the uh, media forces in the industry. So even though we have all the rights, we have the legal rights, the employment rights, and the professional rights, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the crucial point is the company's affordability to uh, pay journalists. If they have not enough finance to maintain the journalists, so what, what alternative do they have? 
so you can see today many journalists are out of job as I can read it out here. Uh, Utusan was the first to uh, lay off about 300 journalists in October 2019. This is uh, uh, very uh, early part of the change of the Barisan National to Pakatan Harapan. And uh, in December, NS National uh, News Six Time uh, have exercise retrenchment where we have lost 190 members. And in June 2020, they also had a retrenchment. This uh, more to the media prima, including the TV stations. And also the Star, which is uh, quite a very strong financial uh, media company, has also practiced. Uh, exercise uh, MSS and in 217 and VSS in 216 and another MSS in November 2020 where we where with all this uh, layoff retrenchment exercise exercises we have only 480 members today so there is about one third of the total numbers that we had. Uh, in 2018, before the election that the Barisan National had lost. So this is the uh, landscape or the newspaper industry landscape in Malaysia today. I think uh, this is not only uh, exclusive for Malaysia, it happens all over the world as the media industry, especially the newspaper industry is facing out and going uh, to the age. Uh, as we know, uh, National Union of Journalists is the only uh, trade union organization that protects the uh, benefits of the journalists and also the uh, rights, uh, the press freedom for journalists. And, um, and other associations, they only focus on the press freedom, but not uh for the rice bowl of journalists so uh we are very much working on uh in line with the employment act 1955 and also the trade union act 1959 where the act regulates and register the constitution of trade unions and the rights and liabilities of trade unions so under this act uh all, all the branches of the NUJ has their own uh, collective agreement. Under this collective agreement, we have uh, all the rights, including the workers' wages, the overtime, uh, the benefits, the, the uh, little bit of uh, legal rights protected by the company, and also. Uh, uh, the uh, gratuity and the long-term benefits of the working journalists. So uh, we are also uh, very uh, strong with uh, aligned with ISD because uh, as you know, Malaysia during my time was very much uh, under the threat of Internal Security Act, Official Security Act and all the draconian laws that uh, always uh, 
behind us, you know, behind journalists. Uh, because when the Internet Security Act was a very powerful tool to stop NMD from voicing out their uh, minds and their dissatisfaction, so do, and also the journalists were the ones who will uh, relay the message to masses, and we are also part of the ISA. So the ISA is a very um, uh, strong tool to uh, to uh, delay or to stop the uh, journalists from really uh, expressing their freedom uh, through the newspaper or any media that they are working for. So uh, now that the ICA is not around and the Facebook and the other platforms, you see the journalists are becoming more uh, freer and more courageous to write their minds, but to bear in mind, some of them had also been questioned and also been charged in the court. So whatever platform or medium that journalists are working, they are not, uh, what call that, they do not, or they don't escape from all the laws governing the freedom of the press or the freedom of expression. I'm not saying that there's no freedom of expression at all in Malaysia today. They are increasing or the rate is better as compared last time. But still, we have to bear in mind there are still laws that we couldn't go uh, easily or escape from it. So that's much I can say. And another point is that uh, being affiliated to IFJ, we have a bigger spectrum to uh, voice our uh, minds and to express our minds because they are there to uh, support us in Malaysia during my time. So I still remember when we had one journalist uh, detained under Internal Security Act and we told the authorities that if this journalist uh, is still uh, under detention, we will uh, not hesitate to uh, message this to IFJ to tell the world that we have ISA and a journalist has been detained. So that uh, is about all at the moment. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Panorila. And to begin, and you know, some of the few things that uh, Madam Norila has shared uh, kind of reminded me of what's happening around the world as well. And looking in, in Ethiopia, where a journalist, a cameraman from uh, Reuters was uh, arrested and uh, detained uh, for, for covering uh, the political situations in Ethiopia. Uh, however, in Malaysia, although the situation has improved, we still have this some of these uh, restrictive laws and draconian laws still in place. Uh, we still haven't seen the uh, media council to properly establish still in the protem and there's a i think looks like a long road ahead so to begin let me introduce you to our speakers today uh first one we have andrew cool so andrew was called to the bar of england and wales by the honorable society of grace in in 1991 and admitted as an advocate and solicitor of the high court of malaya in 1995. He currently serves as co-chairperson of the Constitutional Law Committee and is a member of the following Bar Council Committees, 
uh, namely Human Rights Committee, Legal Profession, Migrant, Refugees and Immigration Affairs, Child Rights, uh, Orang Asli Rights, Reform to the Legal Sector, and Task Force of IPCMC. He was a member of Bar Council Institutional and Law Reform Committee and Islamic Finance Committee. Andrew has served as a co-chairperson of the Human Rights Committee from March 2009 to April 2019, an ad hoc committee of AMLA, AMLA, from June 2011 to April 2019. Andrew has represented the Malaysian Bar in giving training seminars, public briefings, public forums, press conferences, and print and media interviews, speaking on wide spectrum human rights issues in Malaysia. He has drafted and edited the Malaysian Bar submissions to the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva in respect with the Universal Periodic Review of Malaysia in 2008, 2013, and 2018. He has also written over 70 articles published in local and foreign news outlets, including Malaysia Kini, New News, Straight Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Secondly, we have Mohan Ramakrishnan. He was called to the Malaysian Bar in the year 2000 and has been an active practice since. He mainly handles the industrial relations and labor cases. As a seasoned industrial relations litigator, he has handled various disputes, including but not limited to a wide range of matters relating to dismissals from employment, including constructive dismissal, collective agreements, trade disputes, etc. He's also an active speaker at seminars and forums on industrial relations jurisprudence. Prior to practicing law, uh, Mohan was also one of the top five insurance companies in Malaysia then, in charge of Maritime and Aviation Insurance Claims Department for a period of three years. He was also an accredited maritime insurance trainer in a, in, in a collaboration between Mitsui and PIAM. At present, he practices law at Mrs. Ramakrishna and Associates in Petaling Jaya. So I welcome Andrew and Mohan to the webinar today. So coming to the first part of our discussion, on, uh, I'll bring this to Andrew for a start. And when it comes to, you know, these days you are facing a lot of misinformation and disinformation. Um, I mean, a lot of readers out there, I mean, a lot of uh, consumers, people out there are really confused between what's really real, what's real and what's fake. And does it actually open up to a lot of opportunities to the, uh, to the authorities to tighten up the freedom of expression? You know, at one time, uh, there were talks about bringing back the anti-fake news law. So, Andrew, so near, there were nearly 300 uh, investigation papers on cases on related to fake news on COVID-19 pandemic. They were open this year. Only about 10% of them were charged in the court. So, as I mentioned earlier, despite the repeal of the Anti-Fake News Act last year, we're seeing a growing trend of the spread of misinformation and disinformation in Malaysia. Can you weigh in your thoughts about it, Andrew? Norman, hi. Thank you very much uh, and good morning to everyone. And uh, thanks to uh, IFJ for uh, inviting uh, me to uh, be a part of this webinar this morning. Uh, to answer your question, I think we have to, uh, just like an onion, we have to uh, you know peel off uh, several layers. Uh, the first uh, is, I think, the fact that at the end of the day, um, the responsibility uh, for uh, news and for spreading news uh, does uh, lie with the uh, consumer, the, the, the reader, uh, you know, and I think it 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 really uh, is important for for people to uh, check the facts first before uh, spreading or sharing news. I think that's that's the first thing that I think I I, I would like to get get across. Um, you know, people seem to be in a race to want to share news. Uh, 
uh, but you know they don't check first, and it's you know with the, the with with modern technology now, it doesn't take uh, very long to uh, check uh, the facts of any particular news story before sharing it. So I'm a bit surprised when people say, "Oh, you know, I didn't check." I just you know the usual phrase was forward as received, and to me that's like uh, rubbish. Basically, uh, you should uh, check. The second point I think we also want to 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 raise is um, the fact that um, news is very dynamic. Um, so what exactly is misinformation or disinformation? Let me let me focus a bit about misinformation. I mean, misinformation at the end of the day could merely be errors. Uh, so you go to a, a story, uh, and the story says you know uh, accident happened, uh, four people were injured. Well, that may be true at the point in time when uh, the report was made, but later on, it you, you know it's 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 realized or it's discovered that six people were injured. Now, is that misinformation? Is that disinformation? Or is that just you know uh, the story develops as uh, you know new facts are are brought to light? Um, so I think this is also something that should be taken into account. Uh, you know, especially by the authorities, you know, uh, not to be so uh, strict in the sense of saying like, oh, you know, you, you said something that was not true. Well, it, it may have been correct at the time. It may no longer be correct. So give you an example in, in, in this uh, sense of, uh, in this period of, of, of COVID-19. Uh, you remember, uh, Norman, I think, you know, when it first started, uh, there was, you know, talk that we should not use face masks. And really, the reason for that, if we, you know, if you you go back to to the, the the story, was that there were insufficient supply of face masks. So people were members of the public were asked not to use face masks, uh, not because face masks were wrong, but because face mask supply was limited, uh, and the priority should be given to frontliners and things like that. Um, and then, of course, later on, as supplies developed, uh, you know, uh, people were then encouraged uh, to uh, use face masks. So, if you look back at the story and you don't know the the, the facts or the contemporary uh, situation, will you say that you know, oh, it was fake news to say that you know you should not use masks? No. Again, it's 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 a question of the. Uh, the story developing and the facts changing, and as you uh, the facts change and more facts come to light, um, you know the, the story will change. So I think there's a certain element of, uh, as I said, dynamism uh, in these issues that 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 need to be uh, uh, taken into account. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, just uh, for now, I mean, we can continue this discussion. Thirdly, I think you have to distinguish between uh, opinion versus fact. Um, some people are spreading stories. Some people share stories. But are these facts or are these just expressions of opinion of people? And then, of course, the question is, what is that opinion uh, based on? So people need to distinguish between uh, what is an opinion, a view, uh, versus what is a fact. As you know, as also has been said, you, you are entitled to your own opinion you're not entitled to your own fact. So I think these are some of the things that we need to understand when it comes to uh, fake news. And then finally, of course, uh, just to say that, um, 
you know, when uh, the fake news legislation was being uh, introduced in Parliament, uh, the Bar Council, of which I was a member then, I, I, I'm not a member now, we, we said, and we, we still maintain, I think, that, uh, you know, there was no need for uh, uh, specific legislation on fake news because we already have sufficient uh, legislation that deals with false news. Um, and so, you know, we can uh, deal with um, you know issues regarding uh, false news uh, using existing legislation. So uh, you know, I'm I'm glad that the uh, anti fake news uh, act has been repealed, and there's to me no no reason to to bring it back because uh, you know we have sufficient laws at the moment to deal with uh, any situation of uh, chronic uh, misinformation and disinformation. So I I, I leave it there uh, for the time being. So in your opinion, uh, Andrew, uh, what is the current situation that we have in Malaysia? Are we doing enough uh, to curb this problem? I mean, even journalists there themselves uh, became the center of attention. Even um, even they themselves caught in a trap, even uh, in in middle of all this with the spread of information and then themselves get caught in the middle. And then at the end of the day, uh, newsrooms had to retract the stories. So... You know, looking at this uh, to follow up though, uh, despite all these efforts to educate the public about media literacy and then uh, teaching them about, uh, you know, and, and, and the authorities are using existing laws to curb the spread of falsehoods. You know, how different are we compared to Singapore? Uh, Singapore has uh, POFMA, the prevention of falsehoods. Uh, and now it's even more pressing. There's still a lot of misinformation about vaccination. Um, just now, as I mentioned, journalists are falling prey to the situation. And they're exposed to these sort of challenges. So do you think uh, the authorities today are using this as a blanket way to restrict freedom of expression? Well, I think your, your question, uh, you know, needs to be uh, understood in uh, a, a bigger context. And really, to me, the, the, the main issue is the availability of information. Um, and I think what is the problem uh, in Malaysia, generally speaking, uh, is a lack of uh, sufficient information. So right now, what we do, what we have, of course, is uh, you know daily briefings, daily press conferences, where the government uh, puts out a particular uh, uh, perspective, uh, and of course, uh, journalists will then go and they will report that. Um, but you know, again, uh, you know, based on what I said, there there are facts and there are opinions, uh, and the question is you have to distinguish between the two. And sometimes when press conferences are, are, are being made, uh, you know, uh, again, you have to distinguish between what is the fact uh, and then what is an opinion based on those facts. Um, so, of course, uh, different people can come to a set of facts and, and, and come away with different opinions. So, to me, again, uh, you know, if it's uh, honest, if it's, um, you know, done uh, in... in in all sincerity, I think there is the possibility of, of course, there being differing views about the efficacy of vaccines, for example. I mean, you know, there is one line that's been uh, put out by governments and, 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 and pharmaceutical companies about the efficacy of uh, vaccines and lack of uh, you know, adverse uh, side effects. But then there are other uh, views based on uh, other, uh, you know, uh, scientific uh, studies that uh, basically come to the conclusion that, well, you know, it's not so clear-cut. So as long as this is being done in the 
you know, with again, with the sincerity or with the honesty of trying to uh, promote or to uh, convey uh, information about different perspectives, I think that should be allowed. And that is part and parcel of the idea of freedom of expression, uh, which is not just the freedom to express your own opinion, but also the freedom to receive information, to disseminate information. So I think uh, the authorities should, uh, you know, resorting to the law to, to, to punish people or to threaten people, I think is the last resort. The, the thing that uh, authorities should be doing, and, and to a certain extent they are, is to put out their information to counter what they think is wrong information with information, with facts, uh, so that people can can decide for for themselves rather than just say that you know oh I don't agree with you I think you are wrong and I'm going to try and find a way in law to shut you down or shut you up I think that's the the wrong approach you 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 curtail uh, false information or wrong information by arguing the facts and putting out uh, you know the the facts to, to support your case I think that's uh, a way uh, a more mature uh, society would deal with issues like this. Yes, Andrew. I think we've also seen quite a lot of, uh, you know, discussions and also exchange of angry comments uh, because I think generally Malaysians are still not that mature enough having uh, differing opinions. So, Mohan, I'd just like to pick your brain on this. Uh, What's your take though? Uh, Okay. To, To me... See, the thing is, as Andrew has rightly pointed out, he says, you know, there are facts, there are opinions. Uh, So at the end of the day, if a journalist uh, wishes to report on something, go back to the source. I think that is the most important uh, thing. You go back to the source, you investigate, you research on uh, that issue before you put it up in your article. Now, uh, the journalists need to know that they need to be more responsible in reporting. Now, when you say more responsible in reporting, what I mean is speak to industry experts, all right? That will give you a justification to uh, come up with that article. So it is very important that you research, go to the right people, do not not just take, uh, you know, opinions of people on Facebook or, you know, any other social media and take that as the gospel truth and put it up because that is not going to get you anywhere. You will have problem with the authorities if that is going to be uh, false information. See, so the, the only thing you need to do is make sure your research is done, you investigate properly, go to the right authority, the right people, right experts, get their opinion. If you can justify your article, the authorities can't do much to you. Thanks, Mohan. You know, moving on to you know from our earlier brief discussions uh, when we when we were, before we started the webinar, you know, there's always a the 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 the, the pinching point of uh, of our work as journalists is that how do we access the right information? Just now, Andrew has rightly pointed out is that whether you know from news press conferences, uh, the you know the press getting getting access to this of information, and then what sometimes when we do investigative stories. How are we going to protect our sources? So, Andrew, it is very, 
it is extremely difficult these days to access more information in the midst of the pandemic. You know, it can be about COVID-19 or it can be about corruption or whatnot. So with a blanket restriction after the change of government this year, uh, nevertheless, the uh, government provided the daily updates uh, through press conferences, but not everyone can attend. Um, still some of them, uh, but there are still a lot of restrictions imposed. So it's often that newsrooms and journalists publish stories quoting insider sources that may negatively impact the government of the day. So are newsrooms protected with the right not to divulge sources of information for the stories? Or can they protect their sources? The short answer to your question, Norman, is no. There is no specific uh, protection uh, in Malaysian law um, to shield uh, journalists from having to reveal their sources. Um, so uh, I, I use the, the, the term shield law. So you get shield laws in, in other jurisdictions in America, for example, in Australia, uh, uh, and to a certain extent in, in uh, say, Canada or, or the UK, uh, where um, you know there is the right uh, not to reveal your sources. Uh, but uh, even in these jurisdictions in the past, before laws were introduced, shield laws were introduced, then journalists had to basically put their uh, integrity and their reputation on the line. Uh, they might be harassed by uh, authorities during an investigation stage to uh, disclose their uh, sources. Uh, and then if they remain silent, they could be prosecuted uh, for uh, obstructing investigations or things like that. And then it would have to go to court. Um, and sometimes these journalists ended up uh, in jail, uh, sadly, but, but, but the, the fact is that they did. Um, and some would go in for a, a few days, a few weeks or a few months, depending on uh, the, the severity. Uh, but the courts, even in those circumstances, you know, had to balance, uh, you know, the uh, right of uh, the authorities to investigate versus the right of the public to know. Uh, and, you know, so in that sense, the, the judiciary uh, had to play that very crucial uh, sort of like refereeing role uh, to say we're going to punish, but we're not going to excessively punish because we do recognize the, the need uh, for journalists to do that job. Uh, this, this issue has not come up in the courts in Malaysia. Uh, as, as far as I, I can recollect. Uh, a lot of the times it is at the investigation stage uh, where journalists are perhaps pressured or, you know, they are, you know, well, uh, in, the, in the cut and thrust of investigation, they, you know, the, the, the pressure is, is put on them to, to, to disclose their, their, their sources. But, you know, um, I think at the end of the day, it's a question of up to the journalist to decide whether or not this is something that is important enough for him or for her to, to stand up and, and to, to face the consequences. On that note, uh, from, from Andrew, I'd like to bring this to Madam Norila uh, as a former NUJ president. Uh, in your line of your work for, for decades, you know, in, when it comes to protecting our sources, because this is also our um, the professional uh, code of conduct as well, as we, we have the right to protect. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, we can't protect our sources in this way. Do you think, in your opinion, though, do you think that there is a need uh, to, in, do we need to push for a, a law to make sure that uh, we are allowed to to publish stories where if it, if it is of a public interest? I think it's uh, high time for 
the media practitioners or the stakeholders to fight for the rights to be protected because now uh, we are in the very challenging world because we have uh, uh, information uh, going everywhere coming from all kinds of uh, sources you know so some sources are against and some sources are supporting but we don't journalists we don't really know where or who to quote because there are many sources and sometimes it's so uh, professionally uh, done and professionally uh, voiced out but that doesn't mean that the information are all correct and useful for the public uh, uh, consumption so i think uh, high time for the Malaysian stakeholders and the media practitioners uh, to fight for the uh, to protect journalists uh, for their sources of news. And uh, one good point is that uh, we in Malaysia, we are uh, binded by the Code of Ethics, uh, journalist, uh, Journalism Code of Ethics or Code of Conduct. Uh, as you know, uh, the journalists, uh, the proper journalists or proper uh, professional journalists if they work in a newspaper company or any media company, they have the gatekeepers. So I think uh, the chances to have the sources wrongly code or uh, to deviate the information from the truth is a very small chance because uh, the gatekeepers will be uh, responsible for the end results of the um, write-up or the features. So uh, the most uh, problems is with the netizens who writes uh, anything they like on the uh, Facebook or whatever uh, platform. And they are the most likely to quote all kinds of information that make the public confused. But professional journalists working in the proper media industry or media company uh, will not do that because they have all the gatekeepers to check on the sources and the uh, all the, uh, the 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 laws that will be uh, behind them if they uh, quote wrongly or whatever. So um, I think uh, it is high time for journalists to have the right to protect their sources because this is the only uh, difference that make them from the netizens who write outside there without uh, professional background. Yeah. Thank you, Norilla. Yeah, Norman, uh, can I back just to jump you. in? Sure. Can I just jump in here? Uh, I, I think uh, Norilla has raised uh, two very important points. Uh, she talked about stakeholders. Of course, one of the stakeholders uh, in this scenario is uh, are the lawmakers themselves. And I think uh, what is needed uh, going forward is for laws to be passed to actually provide for protection of um, sources. So we need our own set of uh, shield laws uh, to uh, under underline uh, situations in which uh, the protection of sources will be respected uh, in law. Uh, you know, uh, that, that you also mentioned uh, public interest. So there are times when disclosure is in the public interest. It may be a violation of uh, you know uh, governmental rules, regulations, or even laws. But there should also be a recognition of uh, 
public interest exceptions. And these also need to be uh, put in law. So that's the, the first thing. The, the second thing is, of course, again, when you talk about gatekeepers, uh, I, I'm not so much looking at gatekeepers, but uh, professional standards. So journalists are, are professionals uh, and they should be accountable uh, to a professional body. So whether it's the union or whether, uh, as some people have talked about for many years now, a, a media council or a press council, there should be a degree of self-regulation within the profession. Uh, and, and the government should uh, see, should, should give way to uh, self-regulation rather than uh, to immediately jump and, and, and resort to the use of, of the law. So, for example, if there is a complaint then the complaint about a particular journalist or a particular story uh, should be, at first instance, be directed to this kind of uh, media council for them to look at it and for them to decide uh, whether the, the journalist behaved uh, properly, whether the story was correct, uh, and then to order maybe a retraction, uh, you know, correction, uh, apology even, uh, if the story is wrong. Um, so again, I think... Uh, the lawmakers really need to speed up uh, the establishment uh, of a uh, independent media council that will be uh, the, the the place, the go to place uh, for netizens, for for whomever uh, consumers of of journalism uh, to be able to to uh, complain if there is, including the government. The government should also go and complain uh, to the uh, media council if they think that a particular story is unfair or is unethical or unprofessional. So I think that's where we need to be going. Uh, I know there have been some efforts to, to uh, establish one. There's been some draft laws that have been put up, proposed under the previous government and, and even until uh, under this one. But, you know, uh, progress seems to be very slow. You know, on, on some of the situations that we face currently, like for example, uh, we've seen newsrooms uh, getting dragged to the courts of a comments made by readers on their website. So when the comments are offensive, who's going to be responsible in this kind of case? Now, what if the comment is used as a plug-in from a social media platform? Because you see a lot of digital news, they're using plugins from um, social media platforms. Uh, are they still liable for offensive comments like that? So what if the offensive comment is made on the publisher's social media pages? Well, I think this uh, involves a, a, a whole uh, a separate set of, of issues that need to be looked at. And the question is uh, what they call uh, intermediaries, right? Uh, media intermediaries and the extent to which they um, police the comments, they uh, intervene in the comments, edit the comments, uh, or are they just uh, intermediaries that, that don't do anything and just allow a sort of like a flow through uh, of, of information. So, uh, the, I mean, if you look at internationally, uh, you know, the, the argument uh, is to basically say that if you are this kind of intermediary where you don't get involved in uh, the editing uh, of uh, comments, then you should not be uh, held uh, liable for uh, things that are put up. So as you say, things like uh, comments uh, on, 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 uh, you know, on your uh, web page, website, whatever it is, uh, which is not moderated, uh, plugins, that sort of thing, which is not within your control, you should not be uh, held responsible uh, for that. Um, 
Of course, there will be people who disagree uh, and that's where the debate is. But then the other thing, of course, is that if you do actually moderate, if you do actually edit, uh, then, of course, if you edit and you edit uh, incorrectly or insufficiently and things do get out, then the question is, should you then be held uh, responsible for uh, your failure in that sense to uh, uh, properly uh, monitor and, and regulate? Of course, that leads to a, a, another point as whether or not uh, intermediaries have a should be under a legal duty or, or to actually actively, proactively monitor uh, comments. Uh, and I, I would venture to suggest that in, in this day and age where uh, comments are fast, comments are so many at, at the times, it, it may not be uh, practical um, and it may not be uh, you know, suitable for uh, to, to make demands on, on, on intermediaries to uh, proactively uh, monitor the, the comments. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, this is again another expression of uh, freedom of, of speech or freedom of expression. And the people who uh, post are, are the ones that, that ought to be uh, responsible for the comments that, that they make. Andrew, when you see... Uh the different there are, there are so many different organizations of uh, newsrooms in Malaysia itself. They adopt various house styles, ways of publishing stories before finalizing the end product, uh, whether on print, on radio, on TV, and online. So there's a flow of how news is being processed or late, late uh, towards the end product of it. So editing of stories by news editors and based on organizational policy, how does this impact the final output and who is responsible for the published news? Well, that's a very interesting uh, question, Norman. Uh, and you know, thank you again for that very kind intro. I mean, I've been interviewed several times by uh, the press, uh, and I've been in inverted commas a victim of uh, this kind of uh, editing. So there was a I, I won't name the the the, the publication, uh, but there was a story that appeared a few months ago, um, which quoted me uh, uh, as saying that. Um, you know, I had I had said that, um, you know, for the Batu Sapi uh, by election, that Warisan should just be allowed to appoint uh, uh, a person to take the place of the late uh, Datu uh, VK Liu. So when I read that story, I, I was a bit alarmed because I never said that. I, what I actually said was that there should be a no contest uh, and that the by-election should take place and you know the, the Warisan candidate should be allowed to, to win unopposed. That was what I said. So I actually uh, managed to contact the journalist uh, who, whose name appeared in the byline uh, of that article. And I was surprised and he was very surprised as well. He said, I never wrote that. So I said, but, you know, if you didn't write it, you know, how is it in your article? Uh, and then it, it later transpired that it was added by the editors and the editors had got it wrong. Um, so uh, if I didn't check, uh, if I didn't probe uh, further, I would have just seen the byline, seen the reporter's name and said, look, you're responsible, you know, and, uh, you know, because the article is in your name. Uh, don't come and tell me, oh, you know, internally the editors changed this, that and the other. To me, as the you know, as the consumer of 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 the news, uh, that is irrelevant to me because you know you and the, you as a journalist and you as a, the the press company are are one. Um, so you know, of course, it was resolved uh, you know relatively amicably. There was a uh, correction, but there was no apology for for misquoting me. Uh, but you know, if, if it was something worse and 
it goes to court and there's uh, you know a suit for say defamation and things like that then you know um, the journalists together with the, the the newspaper editors and the newspaper company uh, would would uh, would be on the other side of, of of the court case being being sued for for you know defamation you know so I think uh, you know this is where journalists need to look at their stories. Uh, I know it's a busy life and you have to you know, write so many stories and you may not actually read what is uh, ultimately published. But at the end of the day, you have to check uh, what the editors have edited in terms of your story. And again, uh, a, a, another anecdote is that, you know, they get quotes wrong. So, you know, I would have to call up journalists and say, look, I never said that. Uh, and then, of course, the journalist said, yeah, 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 no, you know, I looked at my records, you never actually said that. And then it again transpires that, oh, the editors edited things for brevity and for things like that. And then, you know, edited your comment and took it out of context and it, it comes out totally different. So the question is, yes, ultimately the editors are responsible, but you as a journalist, your name appears there uh, and, you know, you would be uh, prima facie on the face of it, you would be responsible. I'd like to ask uh, Norila to weigh in as well, because uh, there are also times where we've also seen several situations of um, editorializing the headlines where things are now like what Andrew has mentioned, where quotes are most sometimes are taken out of context. Uh, some, and then uh, I understand that there are sometimes the limitations of the uh, uh, limit of number of words, uh, especially when it comes to headlines. But sometimes headlines aren't clear. It, it tells a different kind of story. So in, in, the kind, in this kind of situation, as mentioned by Andrew Norila, I'd like to hear what you, what you think about it. As I mentioned uh, earlier, that the, uh, the newsroom... Uh, the newsroom uh, structure is such that uh, before a story could be published, it, it goes in several stages. The news editor, the sub-editor, and senior editor, and the chief editor. That uh, only that level, I think, if the story is uh, critical and controversial. So it goes into a very uh, strict, uh, strict uh, vet. But normal story, it will just uh, go two or three layers, then it will be published. But uh, as what uh, Andrew said, that the story at the end of the day or what came out in the newspaper the next day is totally different from what the journalists have written. I myself have, I'm, I was a journalist and I myself had often uh, argued with the editor who checked my story because I was the one who interviewed, I was the one who knows the crux of the subject and he, out of nowhere, he will turn it until the meaning or the true picture is totally out of context. So, uh, as I was a unionist, I could stand on what I feel what is correct. But what about others? I don't know. So uh, most stories went uh, astray because of this uh, misquoted, misquoted, and at the end of the day, at the early in the morning, the people will call, "Oh, this is wrong. This is misquoted." And the next day, you see in the newspaper will be a correction and uh, sorry or apologize. So this is the scenario actually. 
but um, what Andrew have said that for his case is uh, very uh, uh, kind of a very um, critical situation maybe because what he mentioned is different what is written maybe is a backlash to him as a professional lawyer so I think he has all the right to make correction and they have also the right to apologize and make the corrected version so this is usually the case but nowadays uh, when online is concerned is very fast they can change if you don't like the statement you can ask them to change and they will change it but in newspaper it's printed is quite difficult and slow and uh, that is the difference between during the days when newspaper uh, was very powerful and today it has been taken by online so i think i don't know the case of uh, mr andrew whether it's a newspaper or online online is very fast they can change it but newspaper the, only the next day they can change the uh, true version of what you have said so that is the picture of the journalists in relation with the gatekeepers in the newsroom Okay. Thanks, Naira. I think we have one comment from uh, for our participants, uh, uh, from Richard, particularly. He said that uh, Freedom of Information Act, uh, FOI, should be pursued and passed by the parliament. Uh, Media Council must be established, currently uh, still in a pro tem, to tackle uh, fake news, inaccuracies, government interference, and other issues that may victimize journalists. Um, I've also checked, uh, just I remember some of my earlier readings. In UK, they have the... Um, they have a protection for, for journalists as well uh, in the uh, Contempt of Court Act where it provides, uh, under Section 10, it provides the uh, free and democratic, uh, for example, to protect uh, journalist sources and presumes in favour of those journalists wishing to do so. However, uh, in the interest of uh, justice, national security and prevention of disorder or crime, um, information has to be disclosed. Uh, maybe, Andrew, you'd like to weigh in on that? Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, international human rights laws, even when they talk about freedom of expression, um, admit that uh, no freedom is absolute, and you you know there are certain situations in which that freedom can be uh, 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 reduced or, 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 or uh, limited. Um, so uh, na certainly, national security is is one of them. Uh, the, the problem, however, is what constitutes uh, national security. And uh, unfortunately, in Malaysia, uh, the excuse or the reason uh, of national security has been overused uh, far too many times. Um, and sometimes when you look at it, it's not so much national security, but individual protection. Uh, it's about political survival, that sort of thing. So th those are not uh, national security issues. So in, in the UK, it's interesting that, you know, uh, Norman, you quote this in the context of uh, contempt of court. So at the end of the day, it's for the judges uh, to decide whether or not, uh, in this case, disclosure of your sources, uh, this, uh, you know, disclosure of how you got uh, material uh, is uh, uh, is at the hands of, of the judges and the judges uh, decide uh, having uh, the full facts before them. So again, in, in Malaysia, you know, uh, we, we tend to have a practice of uh, 
basically uh, giving way to the executive. If the executive says, oh, you know, the if government says that, oh, this is uh, national security, uh, the courts will say, okay, we're not going to look into it because the government has said it's national security and we just allow that to, to, to take place. So in a robust um, democracy, which recognizes the role of uh, um, journalists, the, the role of an independent media to act as a check and balance on the excesses of uh, any government, um, the, the, the courts uh, should be very uh, reserved about uh, giving uh, the executive such uh, freedom to, to do things uh, as they wish, and they should be more uh, protective of, of the rights uh, of freedom of expression. So that is uh, how I think uh, it should be addressed. Certainly, I agree with... Um, uh, Richard, uh, that there ought to be uh, a Freedom of Information Act uh, to take over the uh, uh, Official Secrets Act. I think we, we, there's still a need for Official Secrets. We all recognise that uh, certain things uh, are necessary for genuine national security. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, that has to be taken into account. But the difference between an official secret acts environment and the freedom of information environment is that in the latter, in the FOI, then the presumption is everything should be released except in certain circumstances. Then, then you list the circum certain circumstances in which uh, they, uh, the freedom will be curtailed or, or limited. Whereas at the moment, we live in an OSA uh, environment where everything is secret unless it's officially revealed and and uh, you know and allowed to be disclosed. So it's a totally different uh, mindset. It's a hundred and eighty degree uh, turnaround. And so I think going forward, that is that is certainly uh, where uh, we we should be going. Thanks, Andrew. I think we have also another question from uh, Raja Muragaya. He says that even if we misquoted someone and immediately corrected it uh, in online, uh, would we be liable to a lawsuit? Um, it shouldn't be. I mean that. I mean, if there's a genuine mistake uh, and there is a quick um, correction, retraction, apology, I think it should be left at that. Uh, I, I don't think it should give you grounds to uh, to uh, pursue it any further. Because, as I said, you know, uh, things are dynamic. Um, news is dynamic. You may say one thing today, and then later on, as more facts uh, come to uh, the fore, uh, you may change your story. And, 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 and therefore, you know, uh, the, the source may be wrong, source may be incorrect, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, as long as you have done your uh, homework, as, as, as Mohan said earlier, as, as long as you, you have attempted to check your facts, uh, you have uh, tried to, to get corroboration or you know, support for, for your story and you acted in a responsible way, um, I don't think that uh, you know, uh, a mistake uh, which is ultimately retracted or speedily retracted is, is something that should then uh, be the basis for, for a lawsuit. No, so... Thanks, Andrew. I think we've come to the next part of our webinar today, right? It will be that I will say this as the three inevitable realities that we face uh, for a couple of years already. Um, one, MSS, VSS, and retrenchment. We've been hearing this for over the past few years, over the past five years. So to Mohan though, hundreds of media staff and journalists were offered MSS, VSS, and then more recently retrenched from newsrooms due to downsizing exercise. And some of them just have to shut down. Uh, this is not new, but 
is this the best solution to solve the current situation? What are your thoughts, Mohan? Norman, you see, uh, well, we, we've got to see what's the reason for the MSS being offered or the VSS that is being offered to staffs. Generally, of course, they offer such on the basis that there's redundancy, redundancy to the uh, role of those, those staffs. This, of course, brings you back to the issue of retrenchment. Okay, um, MSS, VSS are nicer words to be used than retrenchment. You know, retrenchment, the company just sends you a letter saying, look, you're retrenched, end of story. Whereas uh, VSS and, uh, or an MSS is more of a, uh, a better way of putting things where in a VSS, the company tells the staffs, look, we're going to undertake this exercise. So put in your names put in your names. Now, these are the benefits or this is going to be the compensation that you're going to get. The compensation will be spelled out. And uh, so they will then avail themselves for the VSS if they are happy. Uh, in a VSS, generally, there is no real room for negotiation between uh, the staff who wishes to take uh, the VSS as well as with the company. In an MSS, it's different because that's mutual separation scheme. In a mutual separation scheme, what happens is the employer will contact the employee and say, look, we need to part ways. Um, the management has uh, decided that you will be one of those who are going to be uh, involved in this. The employee will have, will have the right to negotiate the compensation itself. The company will offer a certain package, a severance package, it's up to the employee. If the employee wishes to take it, well and good, they will then sign the mutual separation scheme. The contract of employment comes to an end. If the employee is not satisfied with the severance package, then it allows, it gives them the room to negotiate. You must understand, a company can, company could relent, they could negotiate and come to better terms, or the company would just say, look, this is all we are offering, take it or leave it. And if the employee does not take it, then the employee faces the risk of being retrenched at a later date. It could be one week later, one month later, or whatever. Now, again, the reason will be that your position, your role has become redundant. Uh, that is why we are offering you this package. We do not need your services anymore. You see, um, now you must understand the, the meaning of retrenchment is discharge of surplus labor by the employer for any reasons whatsoever other than a punishment or other than as punishment. And uh, before such an exercise is undertaken by the employer, the employer will need to inform the labor department, Jabatan Tanaga Kerja, they will have to inform them 30 days before uh, the exercise is undertaken. We will have to also see what are the reasons for retrenchment, the principles governing retrenchment itself. Okay, uh, this is important because employees will need to know if the exercise itself is one that is bona fide. It is um, a valid exercise done in good faith, all right? So the company, the burden is on the company to prove that the retrenchment is justified, you know, that this, this position or this, this uh, role, we do not need this role anymore. It's a surplus. So we need to lay them off. 
That is number one, justification. Number two, whether the grounds for retrenchment itself are true. It cannot be fictitious grounds, right? And of course, number three, that there must be no ulterior motive in the selection of the employees. Uh, in other words, all right, it must not be done to victimize the employee itself. Okay, so the burden generally falls on the employer to show these. And uh, of the, the common ground or the common reason to undertake retrenchment exercise is that the finances of the company is bad and uh, the company has got no choice but to retrench those staffs. Now, the company better be ready to open their books first with the labor department and subsequently if the matter goes to court uh, at the industrial court or the labor court itself. Okay, um, now that said, as you have asked, okay, uh, what are the avenues? Are there avenues that must be first exhausted before the company takes such drastic measures of retrenchment? Okay, uh, company should reduce working hours. Okay, that, that should be one. Number two, reduction or freezing of new hirings. You know, it is no point saying that, you know, we're not doing well, so we need to retrench. On the other hand, we are hiring staff. Okay. Three, limit overtime. You know, if you're talking about finances, then you start limiting overtime, work within the certain hours. And uh, if there are, if you require extra work, work, but within certain times, instead of allowing staff to work five hours over time, tell them to work within one or two hours, you stop your overtime. Okay. Next reduction of wages now um many questions have actually um i think mohan has a little bit of a connection problem hi mohan welcome back a little bit of a, a connection problem earlier so i'll go back to you Yeah, I'm having connection issues. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. You can hear me. Okay. Norman? Yes, Mohan, I can hear you. Okay, okay. All right. Okay, so the next is reduction of wages. Many, many questions actually came about during MCO and uh, post-MCO, during CMCO, where employers have actually uh, approached their staffs and say, look, I need to reduce your wages, okay? Because uh, the company is not able to uh, support the, I mean, support its operations by paying so much of wages. Can we take a 20% reduction, say, supposing? Um, unions have asked me, employees have asked me uh, this question, whether this is right, you know, we want to take action against the company. But the first thing I tell them is this, look, if the concerns of the company is real, that you know, a uh, company struggling. Be happy that they are not retrenching you, they are not terminating your services, right? You may need to work with your company, work with a company in this sense and not a reduction that is going to be forever. It will be for a certain period of time, say 
till 31st December or for six months or nine months until the company's uh, so it is good to work with the company and say okay because you must understand unilateral reduction of wages that means the company sends everyone a letter says i'm reducing 30 percent that is wrong company can't do that okay because that is a breach of the contract the terms of the contract of employment it has to be bilateral employee has to agree so if the request is reasonable to it Okay, so reduction of wages is also another avenue that the company should exhaust first. And finally, laying off foreign workers first. I mean, give priority to the local workers. So any foreign workers whose uh, job is not uh, something that uh, is imperative that only they can handle, reduce that. Okay, once you've satisfied all these and you've exhausted these avenues, then the company can decide to let go of first foreign workers. All right. If you have decided to retrench, foreign workers be let off first. And secondly, if possible, follow the LIFO principle, last in, first out. Now, of course, that's only a general principle. As you know, there are exceptions to it where if the senior staff has disciplinary issues or he's less productive than the junior staff, then you can always uh retrench the senior staff so this this is how it should work you know um so again coming back to mss and vss i will say that you know speak to the management right if such a thing is offered to you especially mss speak to the management get the best deal out of it because if you don't then uh, a few months down the road because they have already ideal, they know that you know this position has to go. So you will still be retrenched. But if you get retrenched by not accepting your MSS or VSS, you may probably just get three months salary. I think we've lost uh Mohan a little bit uh for a while there. So Mohan, are you back? Hello. Uh, for the time being, I think because uh, Mohan's bandwidth is can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can. We can hear you. We can hear you. Maybe we can just do voice rather than video. It might Hello. help. Norman, can you hear me? Uh, no, I yeah. This I don't know what's actually happening. Uh, we live in the twenty first century, but you no know, internet connection is quite crappy. Okay. Uh, now can you hear me now, Norman? Yes, Mohan, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Okay, uh, so as I said, you know, take an MSS or a VSS if you have to, but uh, ask the right questions. Now, following on that though, some of the companies uh, decided to reduce allowances during MCO, while another print had to shutter, you know, uh, before MCO, we've seen overnight, the print company had to shut down, uh, making uh, 200 staff unemployed overnight. So in this situation, right, what rights do the media staff has? Or do they, can they receive any forms of compensation, uh, uh, let's say demand for compensation? If not, what can they do? And then uh, I also want to bring in the same question about, for example, in December 2019, July 2020, Media Prima exercised retrenchment exercise twice. And then uh, later on, uh, Media Mulia opened, reopened Utusam Layu. Um, 
this one's from Richard. Uh, can that make sense? Instead of doing other cost-cutting measures, uh, like retrenching workers and open a new to some like you. Okay. Um, now, this, this is a legal issue, of course, which, you know, uh, unhappy industrial court. Um, there, is, there could have been some ulterior motive where they had known that, you know, they were going to set up a new organization, so retrench all these staffs, take a handful of them, pick a handful of them, take them to the new establishment, and uh, the rest we let go, all right? All these in the basis that, um, you know, they do not have sufficient funds and they need to close down the organization, okay? Uh, there is an element of uh, bad faith in this based on evidence. So this matter ought to be trained staff. Uh, they should understand this, yeah? Retrain staff, you could actually go to the industrial relations department, file your representation within 60 days of being retrenched, okay? Uh, from the date of retrenchment, 60 days, and that's mandatory. You miss the 60 days, you are not going to be able to uh, take the matter to the industrial court, okay? Uh, it goes through a process at the industrial relations department and the matter subsequently is referred to the industrial court. At the industrial court, it's adjudication process. You are able to bring in your evidence. The company will have to prove. As I've said, retrenchment, the burden is on the company to prove. So this evidence of you know, them opening up a new organization itself subsequent to the retrenchment and the closing down um, will be an issue which the company will have to uh, Will will have to explain to court because the courts will want to see whether the dismissal, yeah, the uh, employees will be able to get back wages and compensation. Thanks, Mohan. Norman, uh, and uh, let me, yeah, let me let me just continue. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, staff the staffs who are actually laid off. Um, you've got to first see, you know, uh, whether they fall within the uh, terms of the Employment Act itself. Staffs who are earning 2000 and below, their terms of employment is governed by the Employment Act 1955. Okay, and uh, if they're going to be laid off, then the Employment Termination and Layoff Benefits Regulation of 1980 takes effect, uh, where they are entitled to termination benefits. And uh, the termination benefits are calculated by way of um, this uh, formula, that if you work less than two years, you get 10 days wages for every completed year of service. If you've worked between two and five years, you get 15 days wages. And uh, if you have worked more than five years, you get 20 days wages for every completed year of service. Okay, um, of course, to avail this, the staff will have to work not less than 12 continuous months with the organization itself. Uh, for staffs who do not fall within the Employment Act, that means your salary is 2000 and more, then, of course, the termination, benef uh, termination benefits will depend on the terms of your contract of employment. Uh, if there is nothing in there, then what you get is at the discretion of the company. Usual practice is one month salary for every completed year of service. Okay, uh, that is what it is. But again, um, I wish to remind everyone that if you get dismissed, and not, and this is not 
I think we've lost uh, Mohan for quite a bit. Uh, so I, I will, you know, when when Mohan was talking about uh, on that part, uh, I would like to ask uh, Norila, uh, what role does uh, NUJ play? Mohan. Yeah, Mohan, sorry. Um, I, I'll come back to you a little bit. I'll, I'll just go to Norila a bit. Yeah, because just now you were you were cut off again. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, Norman. Yeah. Um, normally the union will seek advice from the lawyer. The lawyer is the expert in advising the union of what to do. As what Mohan has elaborated, I think uh, it's the same as what the lawyer is is going to advise the union. So I think. Um, the union still have a say there. The union still have the binding of the collective agreement. Uh, but as what uh, Mr. Mohan have said that most, like let's say in the uh, journalist uh, wages, they are earning more than 2,000, most of them. And very yes. small portion are earning less mm -hmm. than 2,000. So uh, in normal cases, uh, they only if if they follow strictly to the employment act, they only have uh, like one month compensation. That's what happening to some of our friends in the company that have uh, already stopped uh, stop uh, doing business, and they are in the limbo now, whether to still go to court where they have a very uh, small chance to win the case or whether uh, they have to wait for the company to get uh, the money that they should pay them for compensation because these people are the ones who stay back and not taking the VSS or the MSS because uh, the company has given them a little assurance of the uh, company's uh, stability and uh, going on with the business. So it's very unfair if they were late, being laid off and without getting any compensation. As what you have said, the Employment Act will only uh, allocate one month uh, pay because uh, their pay is above uh, 2000 So that is the limbo now. Yeah. We don't really know where are they heading to. It's it's unfortunate one. Yes. It's unfortunate, uh, but, um, you know, as I said, you know, your your you probably need to go to the industrial relations department and lodge your representation. You're only going to get uh, justice there. You're not going to be able to get justice with a company because once a company's made its decision, right, uh, to retrench you, and if uh, they are not going to offer you anything more than what has been offered, okay, um, that is the end of story. We're still, as I said, retrenchment. Uh, once a company retrenches you, the company could probably just pay you in your contract of employment. If your notice period is one month, they'll just pay you one month salary in view of notice and let you go. You see, so uh, go to the industrial relations department, let the matter escalate to the industrial court and fight your case there. Take your chance there. There is no harm. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Mohan. Thanks, Mohan. 
you know, there's also another issue where um, I will I will also post another question where I've also seen uh, a different kind of situation too. But there are also instances when media companies struggle to pay the media media uh, the media staff, uh, editors and journalists on time, and some result in half month salary payout over the past few months due to low cash flow. So late payments or uh, unpaid salary. So what rights do media professionals have to demand from the employers? Okay. Um. Late payments, as far as late payments or partial payments that are coming in, okay, uh, media staffs, they could put the company on notice that the company is actually in breach of their contract, the terms of the contract of employment, right, and give them five days or seven days to pay the balance uh, amount that is due. If the company does not still pay within that uh, time period, the staff could go on constructive dismissal. Putting basically, it's important to put them on notice. Look, reach the contract, the terms of my contract of employment. You have not paid me this much. Now you do not time seven days or five days or whatever. I will consider myself constructively dismissed. Come the end of the notice period, if the company still doesn't pay, send another letter making send another letter making reference to the previous letter, saying that you have breached the terms of my contract. I therefore consider myself constructively dismissed drop the letter, do not have to wait till 5 p.m. You leave the office immediately. Now, that is one option. Again, now coming back, of course, everybody is worried about the livelihoods and, uh, you know, the rice bowl, yeah? So, as I've always uh, told, told clients as well as people who have actually asked me, work with the company. Work with the company. The company obviously is having issues. If the company has been paying you very well, but you know, these last few months has been a challenge. Work with them, accept what they're giving, speak to them, say that, you know, this is not enough for me. If you could pay me slightly more and uh, try working with them first. Because once you go on constructive dismissal, don't forget, you do not have a job. You know, unless you have something waiting for you, um, you do not have any source of income. And if you do not have source of income, that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. So what I'll suggest is, Speak to the management. If the management is paying you 50% of your salary and that's not enough to sustain, speak to them and ask them to pay you an additional 20% and say that the balance could be paid when the company is comfortable uh, after a certain period of time. You know, um, that is the practical approach. But of course, you know, some uh, companies that are, uh, that can be quite arrogant management, that can be quite arrogant. If you know that you're not getting anywhere, give them notice tell them to make payment. I had I had one situation recently, the staff was not paid for uh, five months, you know, and uh, he came to me and what happened was the management had actually called him in one day, said, look, I want you to resign. You resign and they had a stack of cash with them, stack of cash and told you resign now, I will pay you your five month salary. And uh, this guy said, I'm not going to resign. And he came and saw me. And I said, no, and we drafted a letter for him and he sent him. Within three days, the company paid him his salary. But the issue is, I do not know how are they going to treat him from now on. Okay, because he's actually sent them a letter and they will take that as, uh, you know, uh, him, you know, his, his, his attitude. They will not like that attitude, obviously. So I do not know how they're going to be treating him from now on. But, well, he's gotten his salary. And I told him if there's going to be any other issues, then we have to take them on. Thanks, Mohan. You know, to 
for for this particular part itself, you know, one of the few things, one of the key things is that uh, what about forming a joint consultative committee, a JCC? Is this a viable option for employees to negotiate terms with the employers? Now, I mean, under NUJ, they have the you know different different instruments. They have their own collective uh, agreement. But we've also seen over the years the stagnation of the salary of a lot of our editors and journalists as well. Uh, what's your take on that? So joint consultative committees, uh, this I think was established in 70, 1970s, if I'm not wrong. Um, generally, joint consultative committees, the representatives for the workers are appointed by the company, the employers themselves. I've not heard of uh, elections uh, amongst employees uh, to be representatives of the committee. Now, when you know what happens when employers appoint uh, representatives, okay? So unless those representatives can actually go negotiate without fear or favor, that is good. But if they are going to be a puppet, they're just going to listen to what the management says and uh, doesn't really, uh, if they don't really, uh, you know, uh, speak for the staffs, then uh, it's not going to get you anywhere. But that said, uh, it is good to have joint consultative committee because, um, you know, the workers' rights, the workers' issues must also be heard, must be put forth to the management. So if the management is going to undertake any drastic measures like, you know, reduction of salaries or are going to uh, going to undertake an exercise of BSS, MSS, then the uh, the representatives will be able to go there and talk to the management and try to find permission. Representatives of the employees must be strong, must be must must be firm with what they are asking. So it is not a bad idea, but as I said there are no elections of representatives. So whoever they go there, the invitation of the employer itself. Thank you so much, Mohan, for your, your thoughts. I think we've come to the final part of uh, our, our session here. Is that, um, okay, uh, we will move into the question and answer session. Uh, I will take some questions from our participants. The first one, um, I will ask... Andrew on this, you know, this one is from Sarah. Uh, what if the journalist already has already edited an article, but if netizens screenshot the, the wrong article, uh, who will be liable? Well, the point is that the, you know, the correction has already been made. So the question, the question then is if the netizens themselves are distributing, uh, disseminating the, the, the wrong article, then to me, they are the ones that are liable for actually prolonging or promoting the issue rather than the journalist or, or the, the media company or the newspaper has already made the, the correction. So, so to me, you know, uh, you can't say, oh, you know, I took a photograph and therefore it's your mistake, you know, but you are the one that's circulating it. So, you know, I think, you know, they should be the ones held responsible. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, there's also another one question uh, from uh, Raja. Is it true that decisions of the tribunal court are always in favor of the retrenched employees, Mohan? No, no, no more. Uh, you see, those days, uh, these, these are these, the 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, what used to happen is uh, the industrial court, when, when uh, matters are even, 
the industrial court gives the benefit of the doubt to the employees. That said, these days, the courts are very stringent uh, with uh, the application of principles of the law. Uh, they will see whether there is any valid reason for the, uh, for, the, uh, for the exercise of retrenchment to be undertaken. And if they find that the reasons are valid, they will support the employer. They'll say that the, the termination itself is with just cause and next so gone are the days where we say that you know um, when we go to the industrial court it will all, most of the time favor the employees it doesn't work that way now. thanks mohan uh, i'd like to ask andrew too though uh, when it comes to um publishing stories of public interest uh, is the existing whistleblower uh, do is uh, is it I think, is, is it right to say that a whistleblower act doesn't even cover on that? Well, the way our whistleblower uh, protection act is drafted, you only uh, qualify for protection if you whistleblow to uh, selected authorities. So, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we don't have a public interest uh, exception. So, there is no protection for whistleblowing to the press. Uh, and I think that's a crucial uh, error or cr crucial gap in the law which needs uh, to be rectified. And I think most uh, international commentators, most human rights uh, uh, activists and defenders, when they look at the situation in Malaysia, this is one of their key recommendations that we do need um, whistleblower protection in, in this context. Uh, and sometimes you don't want to or you... You you are you know you you have you have reasons why you don't necessarily want to uh, uh, whistleblow to uh, either your internal uh, you know a control department or, or a law enforcement agency because you're not sure that uh, you know the 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 issue will be properly investigated. I mean, sad to say, sometimes this is this is one of the concerns uh, that it will be um, you know buried or quashed. Or just quietly uh, you know, uh, dealt with. Um, so you know, there is again, you know, especially if it's a a major issue, uh, especially in relation to uh, uh, corruption or abuse of power, you want the the press to pick it up. But uh, as I said, there's at the moment no uh, no protection, um, and uh, you'd have to, uh, I suppose, rely on on the courts. Uh, to see whether they will give you some form of uh, uh, protection for from prosecution. I remember in the uh, previous, uh, I think sometime one one of the uh, discussion uh, among policymakers was about enacting the ombudsman uh, bill to allow um, you know they wanted to improve the public complaints uh, bureau PCB change it into ombudsman bureau. So in you know. We are coming to the end of this webinar. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, what are your final thoughts uh, on this? Well, I think um, first of all, again, thank you very much for for having me. Uh, I, I I close with uh, probably three thoughts. Uh, the first is uh, to recognize uh, the need for um, a comprehensive uh, relooking at the whole area of uh, freedom of information, freedom of expression. Uh, to move to an FOI uh, environment rather than an OSA one, uh, and to uh, allow for journalists to fully play their role uh, as uh, the uh, uh, 
a mechanism to hold uh, government to account and for the press to be able to speak truth uh, to power. The second is uh, greater responsibility uh, and maturity on the part of consumers of journalism, news readers, uh, no, readers of news rather, not news readers, uh, readers of news, readers of uh, blogs and things like that about uh, being able to distinguish between fact and opinion, uh, to, to check uh, the facts before uh, circulating or, or forwarding uh, stories and, and, and just generally to be uh, more, uh, more aware of uh, you know, differences uh, uh, in terms of uh, opinion and fact and, and, and what uh, needs to be checked. The, the third is uh, for more courage. I, I want to close on this. Uh, and it may take a little while, but let me just try to say it as quickly as I can. A bit more courage on the part of uh, the editors. So I'm not talking so much uh, on the journalists, but uh, on the editors. We, we talked earlier, Norman, you, you, you asked me a question about uh, how styles of uh, uh, media companies and things like that. One of the things that annoys me uh, uh, quite a lot is the different ways in which uh, media companies deal with um, things that are, uh, are facts, things that are in the public domain uh, for fear of being sued. And to me, it's a little bit of an unwarranted uh, fear. So what you will get, for example, you will read, and I'm sure you, your, your listeners will, 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 will know it. You know, you'll say, oh, a certain Dato Sri has been arrested. A certain Dato, a certain a person with a title of Tan Sri uh, has been, is being investigated. But they don't name the person. Uh, and then you ask, why is that person not being named? Oh, well, he's not been charged yet. Um, so because he's not been charged, uh, we have an in-house policy of not naming him. But to me, that is, you know, uh, that doesn't make sense. He is being investigated. It is a fact that he is being investigated. You, you know that, uh, uh, you know. And, and so the question is, why don't you report it? Are you saying that you know you can't report this because you're going to, you're afraid that you're going to get sued for defamation? But what is what what is the defamation here? You know, truth is the ultimate defense of defamation. Is he or he, has he not been detained? Is he or is he not being uh, uh, has been arrested? Is he or is he not being uh, uh, under investigation? Those are facts, right? So you should be able to say without trying to be coyly saying oh this dato or that dato or that tansri or this that you know name it. Right, because sometimes when you look at it, the same uh, media companies uh, who who adopt this practice will have no qualms about naming uh, some um, Bangladesh or some foreign worker who has been arrested. Right, so to me, there's a bit of a uh, discrimination going on that the rich and the powerful uh, are protected, the weak uh, and the uh, uh, the downtrodden are not. And I think we need to get rid of this very class-based uh, approach to reporting. Uh, the facts are the facts. And if you report the facts, you can't go wrong. Uh, and so I, I ask journalists and ask media companies to look at their um, in-house policies that have these kinds of very arbitrary uh, distinctions uh, and that they should review them with a view to uh, getting rid of them. So those are the three things that 
uh, I'd like to close with. Thanks, Norman. Thank you, Andrew. I'll go to you, Mohan. What are your final thoughts? Hey, Norman. Uh, no, before that, Norman, I actually see a question here from Richard asking about Section 6 of the uh, Industrial Relations Act. Very quickly, I'll touch on that before my closing remarks. Yeah? Okay, um, Richard, Section 6 of the Industrial Relations Act provides for union-related uh, matters uh, for staffs to actually apply for leave. Now, uh, there has been complaints these last few years from certain companies, certain uh, union members that, you know, the uh, employers are deducting their salaries or deducting their annual leave, okay, and uh, not allowing for union leave to be taken. Um, okay, this has been an issue, of course, uh, but see, what is important is good practice, good practice even amongst union members, okay? It is important that when you apply for your union leave, all right, give sufficient notice to the employer, state particular reason for you to leave and state clearly the duration of pain that uh, you are actually uh, requesting for that leave, okay? And employers, as long as it is reasonable, employers, uh, employers must allow, okay? If they do not allow, then uh, you cannot challenge by way of judicial review as how you have option of the. Uh, can you hear me? I'm so sorry. The connection is so bad. Yeah, I uh, think okay. it's okay. You can you can turn on your video. Uh, and then uh, probably just because of the uh, low bandwidth, you can turn off your okay, video. Uh, you can you can see speak no problem. Okay, I've turned off my video. Okay, so now um, so yeah, basically uh, that's it. Yeah, so the company must give you uh, union leave. Now judicial review is when you uh, are challenging the decision of an authority, government authority, government agency, minister. That is when you actually uh, file for judicial review. Not here when your employer doesn't give you union leave. Okay, so what you can actually do is you could you could lodge a complaint with your union. Let the union take it up with MTUC if they have to, and that matter could actually be brought up to your employer. Now, uh, I always <clears throat> tell union, be in good professional relationship with your employer. Things will be easier for you when you request for union leave or when you're, you know, you're going to represent a worker or whatever your union, uh, your employer will not have any issues giving you uh, your union leave, yeah? So that is, that's, that's the answer to the question, Richard. Now, uh, my thoughts, you see, we are, we are actually going, to, going through uncharted territories, difficult times, everybody, nobody's actually gone through this, okay? So as employees, it's important that you keep your eyes open. All right. Uh, keep your eyes open. See what's actually happening around you at your workplace, as well as within the industry itself. That's very important. And uh, you need to know what's going on in your company. You will need to you know, look at what the management is trying to do with the other departments that may not involve you. But uh, see what the company is actually doing and uh, take the cue from there. Ask questions. Now, this is important here. Yeah? Uh, you've got to keep asking questions to your superior. You've got to keep asking questions to your management. If you feel that certain rights of yours are being trampled upon, or if you feel that the management or the, your superior is being unreasonable towards you, uh, 
ask questions, ask a lot of questions. Another thing is learn how to put things in writing, all right? Send emails to your superiors. Why? Because you need to have your uh, email trails or you need to have your communication trails, all right? You just merely ask in person and leave it at that. Tomorrow, if the matter goes up to court for adjudication, you may say that, yes, I've been asking my management, I've been asking my superior, they'll turn around and say, no, he's never asked me anything. You see, so once you have spoken to them, send an email, confirm the, tele I mean, confirm the conversation on what date, what time, and uh, this is what the management has informed you. Okay, so these are important. Um, seek proper assistance from lawyers as well as trade union, okay? Uh, don't just go and ask any Tom, Dick and Harry for advice, okay? I have seen I have seen people coming after getting the wrong advice and taking the wrong steps. At the end of the day, you know, they're not going to succeed in their claim against the company, okay? So seek assistance, don't be shy. Pay if you have to pay. It's not going to come to so much, but that's worth it, yeah? And, um, I'll just touch on these two issues of forced resignation and constructive dismissal. Why? Because, you know, um, forced resignation is also happening now. You know, as I told you that instance where the, 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 the guy had actually come to me and, you know, the boss's, boss had actually said, you will get your salaries, outstanding salaries if you resign. Now, forced resignation is prevalent these days. So in relation to forced resignation, you must understand the law is very stringent. The law is very strict on this, okay? Uh, if your, manager, your management asks you to tender your resignation and say, go and think about it, come back tomorrow and let us know, the law is not going to support you if the next day you come in with your letter, right? There must be elements of duress. You must remember that. Elements of duress meaning they tell you this is the pen, this is the paper, you write now or you're not leaving the room. Okay, uh, so that there is an element of duress and you have actually uh, tendered your resignation. So the law is very strict. So as far as possible, okay, if you are placed under a situation where you will need to resign, or if you do not have any choice and they're not letting you get out of the room, then put in the resignation, come out, go immediately to a police station and lodge a police report. Immediately, don't wait for a day or two. Lodge a police report that this has happened to me and take the matter to the industrial relations department within 60 days, file your representation. Similar to constructive dismissal. If the company is uh, being unfair towards you, they are, they are not paying you your salaries and uh, they're not availing you of your rights, then Put the company on notice in writing, <clears throat> give them three days, five days or seven days or whatever period of time to rectify the breach. Tell them that you have breached my contract, breached the terms of my contract of employment. If you do not rectify this breach, I will consider myself constructively dismissed. Wait for that period of time at the end of that notice period. If they still do not rectify, you can give in your letter of, letter of constructive dismissal and you can immediately walk out. Okay, uh, so these are important. As I said, the laws become very strict. If you look at the industrial court, cases of forced resignation and constructive dismissal, probably 70% of the cases fail. Okay, so you need to be very careful, get proper advice. That's all I have to say, Norman. Thank you so much, Mohan. Thank you. Uh, Norila, do you have any final words to say? 
okay. Uh, being the uh, former union journalist, what I could say here is, uh, even though uh, journalism as in the in the perspective of the industry itself is going down, but as a journalist, I think uh, the profession should not end there. The profession should go on, even if the newspaper industry is uh, not there anymore, but you can have uh, alternative going for online journalism, going for other platforms where you can uh, practice journalism in the most uh, professional way, get good sources and your writing a credible uh, there's a credibility in your writing your sources i think uh, the the society will recognize the uh, profession the journalist profession and um, another point is where i want to raise here is about the union leaders uh, no doubt we are facing challenges from netizens and people out there who write like journalists, they claim themselves as journalists. But you being uh, leaders and journalists yourself, you should speak up. You should be more brave and courageous enough to speak up for your rights when the company try to uh, lay off or retrench or offer VSS or MSS, as what Mr. Mohan has already laid the, the procedures and what should be done. So I think the problem here is the union leaders that is uh, they are from journalists themselves should be uh, brave, bold and courageous to fight their rights. And especially where freedom of the press and uh, freedom of speech, this is the right time you should stand up because I think uh, with the uh, information uh, going all around with the blast of the internet and all that. I think uh, there is more press freedom now, expression of uh, individuals' expression through the media, whether it's online or newspaper. I think uh, it's a good test for them. I think uh, never say a journalist is a dying profession. You'll be there as long as you uh, write something good for the nation, developmental journalism, not fake news, you are credible, you are recognized. I think the media will be a powerful tools for nation development and for anything at all for positive uh, objective for the country. So the, the crux of the problem is the journalists themselves. Who are they, what they want in life, what they want in their career, and where are they heading to? Are they on the right track or are they only going for uh, fishy issues and uh, that controversial issues that end them in trouble? Or are they uh, just like one of the netizens out there who like to uh, write fake news? I'm sure they are not that kind of people, you know? They are special people with uh, a training background, with ethics, and also with, uh, they know a lot of people and they have a special uh, character, special uh, qualities in them. So I think the crux is the, the journalists themselves, what they want to make out of themselves and where they want to place themselves in the media industry. It's, you don't blame the surrounding, don't blame the political landscape, don't blame the 
the platform or whatever. It's just you being a journalist, be yourself, do whatever you should do for the nation building, for the uh, rights of the people and for humanity and for the nation building. I think that should be the uh, objective of anybody who wants to be a journalist. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Puan Norila. And that concludes uh, our webinar today. Thank you to our panelists today, Andrew Mohan Norila, for your input, suggestions, and recommendations in our IFJ webinar today. So on behalf of the organizer, I would like to thank the Embassy of Switzerland in Malaysia, the European Union, International Federation of Journalists, IFJ Asia Pacific, and National Union of Journalists, NUJ Malaysia. So please join our group on Facebook and continue our discussions and conversations with My Media Matters. That's a Facebook group. So to all our listeners and participants, do follow IFJ's Facebook at facebook.com forward slash IFJ Asia Pacific and on Twitter and Instagram at IFJ Asia Pacific. We will be sharing this webinar forum on Anchor.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So have a great week ahead and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye.